I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today is Janine Capo Crusette. Her new book is My Time Among the Whites, Notes from an Unfinished Education. Alexander Chi, the author of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, says of Janine's new book, the stories Crusette tells in these essays are familiar to most of us, but as something held behind our teeth that she has instead written down. Again and again, in my time among the whites, she untangles the one story no one tells from the other one that everyone seems to know, a high-wire act where the stakes are not just her life, but everyone you know. Crusette is an essential truth-teller. The whisper in your ear you should listen to, wise and funny as she tries to save your life, and this book is a triumph. Janine, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I just have to say that this new book, My Time Among the Whites, Notes from an Unfinished Education, is remarkable. Thank You've you. written just, you know, I, I was I was thinking um, before we started this podcast that you and I both grew up in Miami. Mm -hmm. We're a generation apart. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jewish. You're Cuban. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Miami Beach. You grew up in Hialeah. For those of you who don't know, those are very, very distinct communities here, <laughs> That's in, true. here in Dade County. Yeah, yeah, Hialeah um, is amazing. So, and then Miami Beach is whatever. 
No, yes. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> you're right. That's why I left very quickly yeah, after yeah. I graduated high school. But the thing that I was so amazed at is that being a generation apart, the sense of recognition that I had mm. in this book was not only a sense of that I understood some of the things you were going through as a Jew who grew up in a completely Jewish community, as you were a Cuban growing up in a completely Cuban community. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also that you taught me things about the insights you learned that for me were just very sort of not very well-formed ideas when mm -hmm. I left Miami. But you had some of these remarkable insights. And I think the question that is begged by the title of the book, and it's the thing that I want to propose first is, you call the book My Time Among the Whites. So I ask you, what is white? I think the book makes an argument that whiteness is not actually, in, in the case of this, the essays I'm writing here, it's not really connected to a literal skin color, but more the context in which you find your skin color. And so some of the essays, the ones that are set in Miami, I'm talking about how I got to be a kind of white. And what that meant was I was part of a dominant culture. Um, I think when you are someone who never thinks about race, that's usually a quality of whiteness. And you're like, well, I never think about that. It's just, I'm just whatever. Other people have a race. And I think growing up Cuban in Miami and everyone, and being you know fair-skinned, uh, I had that privilege. And I thought, well, I never think about race. So... I hadn't realized that that was a condition of whiteness. And I hadn't realized that until I left Miami and all of a sudden I felt seen in a new way and that other people were defining my identity for me. We talk a lot about identity being something that we come to ourselves. And I think in my last book, Lizette, the main character in Make Your Home Among Strangers, is trying to figure out who she is and having to to do that while people are also telling her who she is and she doesn't get to define it for herself. And I think that question was something that I couldn't explore in fiction with the same kind of ease as I could via nonfiction. And that's why sort of the impetus for the book. Is it fair to say that being as a second generation Cuban, mm -hmm. Cuban American, um, first generation Cuban American? Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I don't, I know there's like yeah, fluidity in the definition. Strange. So my parents were born in Cuba. Right. And then I was then you born, were born here. here. Yeah. That, um, that it was a dominant culture that you grew up in. Yeah. Uh, both politically, socially, everything. Yeah. And, and I, I know that wasn't the case for them growing up here. Right. But a lot of the things that they worked through and struggled through made it so that I got to be, I got to be a kind of white. You actually yeah. say in, in one of the essays, mm -hmm. you say, there was a time though when I thought I could do almost anything. Growing up in the 1990s in Miami, I saw Cubans working as doctors, police officers, and teachers. Cubans were educated professionals in positions of authority everywhere in Miami-Dade County. As native as it sounds, it took, excuse me, as naive as it sounds, it took leaving Miami to realize that this wasn't the case everywhere, that not everyone knew a Cuban pediatrician or a Cuban lawyer. In essence, it took me leaving Miami to realize that I was not white. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was, I've mentioned this like on different tour events that 
these ideas feel so much more uh, sophisticated in writing right, in the book than when I have to talk about them. And I think that's a little bit of a symptom of where we are in America right now, that when we try to talk about these issues, we feel a little overwhelmed by them, a little afraid that we might say the wrong thing and then get canceled, right? Or the, there's that like fear. Um, so I was like, oh, that's a good paragraph. I'm glad I wrote that because uh, it answers it's a very, my, it's it answers a very good, the question Well, more. it was, it was it, you know, it comes toward the end of the book, yeah. the latter part of the book. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the conundrum that I had reading it mm -hmm. because there was something not troubling, but because I know Miami so well. Right. You know, I know that it wasn't until you really left that you began to feel some of the insecurity or some of the hostility yeah. for being a person of color right, or right. someone who was another, in a sense, mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you experienced that a little bit too when you went off to college in Colorado and yeah. all of a sudden you weren't. Yeah, we talked you know, about that. That was earlier. your time among the whites. In yeah, some no, ways. no. When I grew up in Miami Beach, Miami Beach was all Jewish. It was so Jewish mm -hmm. that I never thought of myself as Jewish. Yeah. To be frank with you. And I went out to Colorado and it wasn't until I got to the near where you are now. <laughs> yeah, seven hours. That I began west. to understand how culturally uh if there's such a word as you know, as 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 culturally singular as those areas tend to be, mm -hmm. that other people just were not seen much mm -hmm. in those communities. Or, the and, right, that you stood out so much, too. Right. And that a lot of times it feels like your purpose in those spaces is to edutain the people around you. And I think that's one of the things that I've, that has been so strange about not living in Miami is that I'm, I constantly feel that many casual interactions turn into interviews about you know, quote unquote, my people or my city. Um, and that there's this sense of entitlement of being able to just ask me what can end up being pretty intimate questions about what it's like to grow up a certain place or who you are. Uh, and that that's like, there's an entitlement there on the part of some white folks. Well, it also puts an unfair burden on you. Yeah, I don't know. You have to be an ambassador for yeah. an entire and it, or you, Yeah, you, you have that pressure, but it's also a moment where you're being seen. This is something that's also talked about in the book. Um, when I talk about college like moments in college where uh, it's called spotlighting, right? Where a, a professor right. will be like, oh, well, we're talking about this particular issue. Uh, it seems to relate to the group that you're part of. So now I want to so call you, on you. So please give right. us the opinion of all Cubans for all time on this issue. Right. And I try in that essay to flip it around. I do it with my students at Nebraska where when we will have had a sort of tense moment in class where I'm usually the only Cuban in the room. Sometimes I've had a couple of Cuban students um, at Nebraska, very different Cubans, right? Came much more recently, uh, did not have any kind of stopover in Miami. Like we're placed in the middle of the, the middle yeah. of the middle of the Midwest, right? Um, and their experience of Guani, that is very different from mine, having grown up here. Uh, but there'll be this moment where I'll come into class and sort of say, you know, I, I'm wondering what do white people think about legalizing marijuana? Could you tell me the white opinion on this? And they laugh because it's so ridiculous. But then there'll be this um, this moment of me pr pushing back on that and saying, no, no, I, okay, yeah, I know it's funny, but like just generally, what do white people think about this? Or other, you know, like weightier topics, like what's, uh, what do white people think about the president, the current president of the United States? So they like them, they don't like them. Like what do, what do most white people feel? And it sounds like an impossible question when you phrase it that way, but that's essentially what, you know, how how that interaction had played out, you know, dozens of oh, times for myself. I get it all the time. Yeah. Oh, you're from Miami. Oh, you know, all Cubans there are very conservative, right? 
I mean, you yeah, just, it's a misconception. People just don't, a completely a yeah. misconception. And you don't really get the new, nobody, I think when you leave Miami, and it may be the case with anywhere that you live or you go, nuance goes out the window. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a little bit. I think there are a few cities in America that have had a body of literature that has become so vast that they get a fair places like new york new york i'd say maybe san francisco los angeles maybe to some extent the places that show up again and again as the settings for you know wonderful books and i would just like to continue to chip away at that here in miami and continue being part of the conversation that is expanding the cultural imagination that surrounds the city um it's, I think it's going to take a while, uh, but well, we're all working hard. <laughs> it is, but it's happening really quickly. It is, I mean, the voices is. now that I'm seeing as a bookseller, voices coming from Miami and expressing the different cultural um, sensibilities uh, is becoming like a rush. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's wonderful. And I, I think I, it's part of why I've kept moving. I, I realize I haven't repeated a genre yet, right? Like I wrote a book of short stories. I wrote a novel, um, this essay collection. So let's talk about the yeah. essay collection. <laughs> Did I know that you write for the New York Times. Yes. Did many of these essays appear in the Times? I mean, you know, I haven't actually done the count. Uh, none of them appeared in full form in the New York Times. Uh, my process for writing essays for the New York Times, my, the opinion pieces, are uh, is to... You know, they usually give you between 600 and 1,600 words, somewhere in that range, depending on what it is you've pitched to talk about. And I, I would write these essays. I would just kind of write out my thoughts and move through the thinking about a particular question. And it would turn into this 4,000, 5,000 word thing. And I'm like, okay, well, this is way too long. Now I have this big hunk of clay and I have to carve out the piece that I'm going to send, you know, to put on display. Uh, so I realized I had all this material for some of these pieces. So many of them, the Are seeds of them, yeah, the, the seeds of them were in the New York Times. But the, it, in some ways, these are these came before those New York Times pieces. Um, and I was hearing from a lot of people saying, I just wish I had a book of these. And I know, you know, the word was getting back to my publisher that people were printing them out from the New York Times and then asking me to Skype in to their class and talk more about the essay. And I was like, you know, there's kind of a demand for this book and, that and I have I to listen to. I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I would call these linked essays. Mm-hmm. I mean, because really... And I know, Janine, we talked about this before, but to me, it also acts as a kind of memoir, mm-hmm. too, because we learn about you, we learn about your parents, we learn about your sister, we learn about your first marriage, we learn about so many things, mm-hmm. but not in depth. Right. We, we learn that they happened. Mm-hmm. We learn about your travels. We learn about the experiences you had. So what you're doing is you're illuminating these ideas that you have about whiteness, about being an other, you know, it's a political book about yeah. the disparity that we have in this country. Uh, you know, you happen to be writing a lot of this around the time of the election. Yeah, and um, immediately after. And immediately after. So it forms, it's it's really a hybrid in a way that I haven't seen in a very long time. Hmm. It left me hungering for more. <laughs> like I wanted to learn more nonfiction. I, I wanted to learn more about you, okay. and I wanted to learn more about your family. I wanted to know that your your I don't want to give any spoiler alerts, but <laughs> I wanted to know that your father was well. I wanted yeah. to know. I wanted to know more about your partner. I mm-hmm. wanted to know what happened that got you to leave 
the one tenure track position you had, and you're now, if I'm not mistaken, a professor at University of Nebraska. Yes, I just I got tenure about a year ago, so I'm an associate professor now. Uh-huh. And then the, the goal is you keep going and you try to be a full professor. I think. I mean, that's that's someone's goal. We'll see where. <laughs> we'll but see you're also happens. teaching ethnographic studies. Yeah, ethnic well. studies. Yeah, so ethnic I'm, I'm joint appointed in the Institute for Ethnic Studies, and that is something that's really opened up a really a lot of really cool opportunities in my teaching and in the the other professors I get to work with. It's an incredibly diverse group of people, not just um, ethnic ethnically and racially, but um, like discipline wise, because we're from a bunch of different units, uh, political science and history. And I mean, it's it's just really cool. So to give me a little picture of, of the ethnicity of Nebraska, because it's something that I don't really know. Yeah. So most people from, you know, I, I you know, you just asked that question. I was like, I shouldn't answer it because I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I know many of my students have Czech last names uh, and are of Czech extraction. Uh, there's also like German extraction, but I just imagine a bunch of people hundreds of years ago running off the people who, own, who whose land that belonged to and stopping and sort of being like, this looks a lot like where we were. This is fine. Let's just stop here. It's I'm tired. Like, yeah, we know it'll snow, but we're used to that. It's fine. And they just like didn't make it to California, right? Like they just didn't get to the next coast. You know, the novel, not, by, yeah. you know, Louise Erdrich has a novel like that. Yeah. What's, in which a guy comes over, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but a guy comes over mm-hmm. uh, and he has no money, but he knows how to make great, great sausages and hmm. stuff. So he starts <laughs> selling sausages in New York City. Yeah. And he gets on a train hoping to go to California. But he ends up in Minnesota, and he just yeah, stays. Yeah, like this is fine. <laughs> he just this stays. Um, so but yeah, I mean, I but in terms of in terms of your department of ethnic studies, though, it's uh, ethnic studies from all over. So, yeah, are you also a, attracting people from out of state? Absolutely, um, especially in our creative writing program. Right. Like that's it's just. I mean, we're a nationally known program. It's that a wonderful. Program. Has a great magazine through Prairie Schooner, and yeah. the poetry side is very strong as well. And so, a great literary press too. Yeah. The second oldest, I think. In yeah. The, and it's Prairie Schooner has been around longer than like it, just a couple Prairie years ago had its 90th birthday. That one of the oldest. Yeah. Um, so, and people can't see, but I'm wearing my Prairie Schooner t-shirt to rep. And then I was and like, I oh, one. this is not uh, <laughs> a visual thing. <laughs> I'm still wearing it though. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the school has a lot to offer and we tend to, because we work a little bit on a sort of mentorship model with our students, uh, the students who apply are coming to work with with one of us. They're very interested in in being mentored. So that's one of the models that I really, it's something I really like about teaching there, that it's very intimate. And prior to that, you were at FSU. I was. I was at Florida State, um, which, you know, I I I miss not having snow, uh, but I, I had never lived in Tallahassee. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that's that was my time among the whites, right? It was like being on faculty at Florida State, uh, not the student body. The student body is like increasingly very, very diverse. diverse, something like 18% Latinx students, but that is not at all reflected in the faculty. And talk about that because you talk about it in the book. And part of that is the tenure. The tenure. Yeah, the way tenure works, you essentially have to die uh, to, to for them to hire someone. Uh, so once you get the job, you have it for life unless you um, like sell drugs out of your office more than once uh, or – yeah, that might uh, that might even be fine these days. I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I shouldn't. Tenure is an amazing protection that, in its perfect form or in its most fully realized form, allows a writer 
uh, and I'm only speaking for creative writing types like me, uh, allows you to move in directions that are riskier, that are advancing knowledge in, in controversial or possibly in ways that can fail. Um, you know, like even with this book and with this title, I'm happy it's coming out with tenure already because maybe in Nebraska, even though it's not a politically charged title, um, because this is my time among the whites, it's just, it's, you know, it's sort of a play too on those um, narratives from a long time ago. And I, I know I've mentioned this before, but how, you know, it was like the intrepid white man explorer would go to some country and take a lot of notes and then come back and put out a monograph. It was like my time among the peoples of New Guinea. Right. And then people would read, read about that and be like, awesome. Now I know everything about that group. Like, you know, people that's kind of parachuting in and reporting back. Uh, so what if we flipped that, right? And made it uh, like parachuting into this sort of the whiteness well, and coming it's, back. It's actually my time among privilege. Really, yeah. Of all kinds of privilege. Yeah. Not just white privilege. Yeah. As we know it. Privilege and, of an education. And, and white a... becomes a metaphor for all of privilege. Yes. Yes. Yeah. See, you obviously, you get it. You get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I, you know, not having ten. if I hadn't had tenure, I think I'd be more nervous about how that yeah. title would read in a state where higher education is, well, many of them, this is the case for a lot of states, but a deeply conservative state where higher education is very much under attack. Uh, at all levels, and really it would make it, it had the it would have the potential to make me a target if I had didn't have the protections of tenure. Yeah, well, which is maybe freedom. I mean, that's what tenure was originally for. Right, right. Was for just that, so that unusual and and controversy ideas could be explored on college campuses. We're just pushing but, the boundaries. But in for those who haven't read the important. book, and I really recommend this book to everybody, and it's not just for you know, one silo of reader. This is a book that everyone ought to read, no matter your taste. And the thing that I loved about it was for those who don't know, it also opens you, it also explains a lot of what your background was hmm. as a young Cuban woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, one of the most miraculous things is that you ended up at Cornell. Yeah. I mean, that Sounds is a miraculous. Weird, right? Well, also, as, a, as you know, from what I know of yeah. Cuban parents yeah. who always wanted to keep their kids extremely close to them, particularly yeah. their girls. Yeah, yeah. That your mother and father were so open. To I, it's really, you I feel very lucky that they were, but it wasn't without its difficulty. And I know, I don't write about this in that first essay, but I know that a weird consequence of that was that. People outside the family, right? Other people that they were friends with or even like more distant relatives were like, well, wh why does she hate you so much that she had to go that far away? Like if she loved you, she would stay. And it being this weird reflection of like, wh what did you do that your your child wanted to go so far? And I hadn't registered that that had happened until I started working myself in college access when I lived in Los Angeles and would meet parents. And I just kept sort of reliving this like mildly traumatic moment of trying to talk to a parent, you know, who lives in South Central Los Angeles and their child has gotten into like Wellesley. And I'm trying to explain to them the opportunities. And they're like, but there's a school right here. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, but FIU is right there. It's great. And I was like, it is great. And you, there is something about leaving home that is a crash course in a different kind of education that will just, you know, and then the worry, but then they'll never come back. And I would have to look these parents in the face and say, well, you don't know that. It's a very good chance they'll come back. And they would say, where were, where did you grow up? 
And I'm, you know, I'm completely across the country. And I was like, well, you know, my situation is complicated. I'm just trying to move back. And I love my mom. And I'm home all the time. And, you know, I would try to like back up. But I was like the manifestation of their worst fear. Um, this child who had gone away, like moved far from home and was not like making steady progress to moving back to Miami at the time. So, yeah, I, I didn't realize like how much that it was a sacrifice for them, not just financially, but emotionally. And also that what they, they endured a kind of scrutiny of, well, you know, she wanted to go away. So, so what was it in your parents' makeup that said this for my daughter is something that's worth us sacrificing? So it's, it's interesting that it's a good question. I don't know exactly the answer. And I think, you know, sometimes you tell, you think about something for long enough that you default to a kind of answer or a kind of moment. Um, I think that if they were here to answer that question, they would say something different than they would have 10 years ago. But I, I really tried to remember what, what sealed it for them. And I write about that moment in one of the essays where they, um, there was a recruitment event that Cornell held for all the students who had been admitted but hadn't committed yet. And it was at a house here in Coral Gables. And you know, we drove up to that house and everybody else that was there had come in really nice cars. And it was this beautiful home with like the old tree. It was like the dream house when you live, you know, in Hialeah, you're like, oh my God, like this is, and there, I mean, there, it, it was just, it wasn't flashy or showy either. It was the kind of money that showed real class, like kind of old money. And, and, and yeah, it was a white family. And there was like, really nice food and they it made a big impression on them and they said we want this we want her to have this chance um and they thought she's just she's got to do something with the opportunity like they understood that in a way I didn't like she's got to do something with that opportunity but she'll hate us forever if we keep her from it and she might not realize it soon but she'll be like 40 and be like, I can't believe my parents never let me do this. You had also been accepted on a full ride to the University of Florida. Yeah, and my best friend was going there right. and we were going to be roommates. And that's what you thought you were going to do. Yeah. But but then you took this swerve. And the thing that's missing from the book a little bit, I mean, you, you talk about your father a lot, about how he really wasn't engaged with reading. I mean, yeah. the, what he read were electrician, yeah, uh, electrical the code, codes the the codes. and all of that. Yeah. You intimate that your mother was very much involved in reading one way or another and that she turned you on to it in many ways. Yeah. I mean, she took us to the library a lot. And the library was – so I went to Miami Lakes Middle School, which has really terrible parking to pick up your kids. At least it did back then. And so she would say, just walk across the field to the library, to the branch library, and I'll pick you up there. And then she'd get stuck in traffic sometimes or then she'd get down and we'd check out books. Uh, I she wasn't herself a big reader and has gotten a little better with it now. Um, it's about finding the right book, and it's like just to give a shout out but to she books. And books. That's the what she's so great about independent bookstores is helping people find the right book for them. Um, but the importance of it was something she yes, the importance of um, of the sort of a life of the mind. And you know, I would see my dad. He's an electrician, and he would come home from work like exhausted, totally sweaty, dirty, something like some like backhoe would have broken and he would have had to get in the ditch and dig it. He wasn't a super, he was, he owned the business and he was the main guy, but he also was in the trenches with everybody else. And he's a little bit of a perfectionist and I've inherited some of that from him where he, you know, he knew he could do the job better than anybody else. So he was going to do it if he saw any reason to jump in. And 
But it was always phrased to me as like, well, you want to marry a man who has a who wears a suit to work. Not that I could wear the suit necessarily. And so I think that's a little bit where, not that I, I mean, I wouldn't wear a suit, anyway, but you know what I'm saying? Like this idea that, um, that that sort of shift in class should happen through marriage and not necessarily through my own actions, right? Uh, and so that was sort of intimated to do, me as well. Do, do you think that your mother and father thought that maybe you'd find a suitable husband up in Cornell that would I know maybe that was protect one of their, you? Yeah, I think that was one of their worries. I remember we had a family meeting about going off to Cornell and my uncle was there uh, with my aunt and he was like, look, she can do this. It was, you know, it was really a family decision. It was this big debate. I had a counselor like come to my house and talk, not like a like high school counselor came and she had gone, this counselor, she was a Cuban woman and she had gone to the University of Miami uh, because her parents didn't let her go away for college. And she was totally channeling something there, which was like, you have to, you can't take this opportunity away from her. Like she was, her own daughter went to Harvard. So she was like really, um, really instrumental in helping them come to this decision and be okay with it. But um, my uncle's, like when he was like, here's the cons, he was like, she's going to go up there. She's going to meet an American guy and she's never going to come back. She's going to marry him and never come back. And that was like, well, that's serious. You know, that's a real thing to think about. And then it, it kind of did end up happening. Right. So um, you had got, you met somebody. I there, did. Yeah, I did. And, and we were married, married for a time. Um, and it was, but, you know, they liked him. So it wasn't a problem, you know. And, it was, and I have to say, <laughs> one of the great scenes that needs to be played out, it needs to be up on the screen, is the, um, <laughs> is the wedding. Oh, man. With the DJ. Oh, DJ Was it DJ Freddie? DJ? That's the name I have to give him in the book, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not his real name. <laughs> DJ Freddie J, I think I call him. Right, with the yeah. Cuban, the Cuban side and the very white Anglo yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the choice of music. Totally. And that, uh, you know, he was not my choice as a DJ. Uh, that I don't want to spoil elements of the book for that. But, I mean, again, that essay tries to use that, the like how the, this hiring of a DJ as this bigger metaphor for how do you, right. is it even possible to meld two cultures? Or is it more about, like, that in leaving them intact and separate, are you actually respecting them more? Um, and that there is no easy answer to this. And well, that's and then, deeply individual. And then the irony is the contrast for when you first moved to your apartment in Nebraska. Yeah, and then I tried and to, like, <laughs> beat up that other DJ because it was totally left over from the other DJ that well, I hated. Well, <laughs> right, but what happened with that DJ? I mean, you you had a... You lived in an apartment in which you were listening to weddings all the, all time. the time. Yeah, it was a little. I was like, "What is the universe trying to teach me?" Let me try to listen uh, to that. And this I was, was like, "After your divorce, yeah, yeah." But I thought, "Oh, this is you know, I'm gonna sort of grow and heal and you know think about who I who I want to be." And this guy was playing the same music for oh, every it made me so mad. Wedding. And then I could hear it, and I was like, "Well, you know what? I'm going to these weddings." So I you became get, a wedding crush. I kind of did. I went to a lot of weddings. Um, it was a strange time <laughs> in my life. No, well, these are all the things that you find in this book. I mean, it, it travels everywhere. And, you know, the other thing, the other thing that, and I'm going to spotlight a little bit here. Okay. Is explain to me the fascination with Disney World. I mean, among, I, yeah. Particularly among the Cuban community yeah. here in Miami. And I've seen it among friends i've seen it among young people who had just have kids mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it is it's a real phenomenon it's a phenomenon that i don't and know and it wasn't a phenomenon yeah. that happened with my family and yeah. my kids so 
I've it was when I read Richard Blanco's essay in Prince of Los Cucuyos where he's talking about Disney World, which uh, oh, when he saw Main Street for the yes, first it, but also just how that was even in his book, right? This right. quintessential moment, like if you're talking about all the pivotal moments in a young person's life, and that if you're from a particular background in South Florida, maybe going to Disney World is one of those, and. I was just examining this really strange pull that Disney had had on me and did I escape its orbit? Maybe not. Like I went back in 2017 and I loved it, but I also, and I loved it and I hated it. It was, they were both sort of existing inside of me at the same time. I cannot speak for the whole group. I know that I tried to contribute to an emerging body of literature about this particular phenomenon by being in conversation with Blanco's essay and referencing it and trying to unpack some of the moments in it. And you did that very well. Thank you. Well, I I teach his book in my Cuban American literature class at Nebraska. So I've had some time to think about it. Uh, But it's it's just interesting to, it, it was the same thing. And you know, it's come up in conversations with other writers about that who are from this area and who are Cuban or identify as Cuban that 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 it's just this great pull and that they, you know, they're not gonna think about it too much. And I think that's dangerous. Well, I'm curious. <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting. It's when will Disney I guess they've started already, but when will Disney World start co opting all of that? Oh, Co-op- soon. It's soon, not over. It's in the works, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, I just think I think one of the arguments I make in that particular essay is that as young Cuban kids, we're fed a story about Cuba. Cuba exists mostly as a story, like the actual place. These are the stories about it. This is what it looked like. It was it's beautiful. Fantasy. It's about fantasy. And what Disney does so well and why it's so dangerous is how they usurp whatever fantasy we might have uh, and insert their own. And that there's a, like behind it is a, you know, an, a, an impulse, a commercial impulse to make money. Uh, and that we just need to, if we're aware of that, then we can make a choice if we want to participate or not. But I'm wondering maybe, and I think the essay tries to to talk about this, is there a particular, are we in a particular place as young Cuban kids like that we're primed for a kind of magical land? And right. when you go to Disney World, because you can't go to Cuba, not that we supplant one with the other, but that we're just already taught to think of fantasy in a certain way for a place that can't exist and fantasy is a place it doesn't exist abstractly right because cuba is a place right and it's talked about in fantastical terms yeah and but also the cuba that that they tell us about in stories no longer exists and will never exist again and And it may never have existed yeah it that's also (laughs) probably true but more controversial for me to say right you can say it um (laughs) no but i mean the whole idea of the you know, the, the winds were always stronger off the beach. Yeah, in yeah. Cuba. And it was the, the best sand was always the best, finest. Yeah. But I believe that. that. But I need to because that's a, a kind of fantasy that helped me that helped define who I was for myself. So and that's that's it starts with a Judith Butler quote, which is like very heavy theory right. about gender. But when I read that about how fantasy is what helps us establish our own humanity. Um, and she's talking specifically in that essay about drag and the, the fantasy of of crossing genders uh, and that by having the fantasy of it, you can manifest it into a reality. Uh, so, I mean, I was just thinking about all that and I was like, does this, can I apply this to Disney World? Which is like the most Miami thing you can do. <laughs> um, I felt like that was the moment where who I, who I was and who I am becoming like smashed together. I was like, let me take this like high theory, but actually try to talk about 
like the Magic Kingdom. Um. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because one of my only experiences with Disney, I, I've had two, but one of them was as a high school teacher at Southridge High School. Hmm. I was, I was. I was convinced by other students to be the chaperone mm. on senior night. Yeah, at, grad night. And grad night. Yeah, and they it still was, do that. It's it was a nightmare. Still... Yeah. It was a, as, a, as a chaperone, <laughs> an absolute nightmare. What, was, what happened? Oh, it's just that it was all, you take a bus in the morning. Oh, no, I know what grad night you is. You spend I've... all night. Yeah, yeah. And you don't get, you know, for me, it was just making sure that none of these kids, you know, did drugs. something yeah. really <laughs> bizarro there. Yeah. And then you don't have any sleep, and then you come back. Yeah, and I, uh, I don't know why. I didn't go I to my do. grad night, but um, you know, it's expensive those tickets, so yeah, we didn't no, go. Were. And it was like, okay, they it's were. that or prom, and um, I didn't go. But also, I was like, it's just it's Disney. But they're like, yeah, but it's at night. Uh, but <laughs> oh, I, I know it's it all through I, the night. I think my grad night, the performer was Destiny's Child. Oh. So I do now. I regret not going because i would have seen beyonce for free which is impossible i just i now. also want to ask you a question about your wedding and your first marriage is given who you knew was coming to that wedding mm -hmm. how did you pick that magnetic field song to be your favorite song because uh, I, yeah. I mean i don't know i know it a little bit yeah well, it's a beautiful song it's a beautiful song but uh, i can't imagine it being globally thought of as that with the yeah crowd. And, you know, as the DJ says, he just dismisses the song out of hand um, with an expletive, which I'm sure, I don't know how the podcast, if it's, you know, PG-13, but he he's like, oh, I've never heard of that song. That's white people shit. And he just moved on. <laughs> he was like, Prang. and he was like, you got to get me that song because I don't even know where that is, where in the world I can find it. I'm like, the internet, yeah. um, the CD. I mean, this was 2006, so it was not hard to find music. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was... Now, were you both living in Tallahassee at the time? No, this was, we were both living in, well, I was living in Minnesota, finishing my graduate work. And so you he got was your living, MFA in Minnesota? I did, yeah. And he was uh, living in, at the University of Illinois, getting a PhD. Was it at the University of Minnesota? I was, yeah. yeah. That's where I was. Um, so we, our, most of our relationship was sort of long distance while we were finishing up our educations. And then I moved back to Miami for a little bit and planned the wedding. And then after the wedding, I moved back, moved to Illinois because he still had a few years left on his PhD. Uh, I think in retrospect, I mean, I, I had what been kind to of, a couple. What kind of oh. work were you doing before you moved into the world of teaching? Oh, I worked as a college access counselor in Los Angeles. So a lot of nonprofits. And then I could trace that back when I was in Illinois, I worked for the Douglas Branch Library as a as a mentor to students who were at risk for um, dropping out of high school. And it was called Project Next Generation. Uh, and I'd always been, I had, while in grad school, I had done sort of mentorship work through different Minneapolis-based organizations that were modeled off of Big Brothers, Big Sisters. So that was always work that had compelled me, um, just sort of talking to people and um, and listening to people that didn't have other adults in their life that maybe were providing that help to them or that privilege, you know. So, so just to change subjects just a little bit and talk about what's happening now, right now. Right now. Um, both politically and culturally. And if we take it from a political point of view, we're in the midst of a nightmare, a political nightmare right now. And you're living in Nebraska, which is an extremely conservative place. Mm -hmm. And from your vantage point, what do, what do you see? I mean, what do you see when... I mean, it's amazing that you write about... When uh, one of your essays, you write about immigration. Mm -hmm. And where are we now in the heartland? 
where are we now from where you sit? Yeah. I mean, this is another, it's a question that I'm a little, not hesitant to answer, but I just like to give the context of like, I'm one person with one opinion. Of course. I'm going to just ask. Lincoln, to some extent, it's a, it considers itself a bit of a liberal bubble in greater Nebraska. Um, I would argue that most of the views that people there that they consider liberal are probably more moderate. Um, that they're not as far to the left as um, as other places that would call themselves liberal. Uh, I think what I'm seeing that is most frightening, and there's a lot to be afraid of. So this is not the most. It's not the most frightening thing. It's but it is the thing that concerns me most. Is just a deep reluctance to have very necessary conversations. And I hear over and over again from people, well, I didn't, I didn't vote for him. I mean, my dad did, my parents did, but I didn't vote for him. And we just don't talk about it now. Like I hear that over and over again. And for me, that completely triggers the memory of like Fidel's rise to power. And this, uh, you know, th this, this other dictator in the making, like before he declared the country communist, before that, that was like this person who had a lot of grassroots support and then um, just sort of like hijacked a country. And for me, the parallels are like unmistakable. And, and, you, that, and you talk about that. Yeah, and to me, it should resonate with the Miami Cuban community. And it, you know, it does to some extent, and it doesn't to another extent. Um, there are a lot of older Cubans that uh, support the, what's going on with the administration right now. And I think they would feel differently if they couldn't live in Miami and, and would have to move away for some reason. But what I see from where I'm at is the the people that need to have this conversation within their own families the most, because it, it, it will be your own people that listen to you, are the most reluctant to have those conversations. And what I hope this book does is to some extent provide fodder for those conversations and that maybe you disagree with. I mean, I try to tell funny stories that open a door and disarm people and then say, well, if you're with me here, can you come with me here? And to encourage that being uncomfortable is a place of growth. You have to be uncomfortable to grow from something. So I, yeah, I think what I'm seeing from where, from my vantage point is a real reluctance to do that. And that history will show us, history has already show us where that leads. And we have very little time to get off that path. So beautifully said. Oh, thank you. Really. And and the humor in the book is palpable. I, it's hard to be like, it's a book about race and citizenship since the 2016 election. And I swear it's funny. Uh, and not on no. purpose. I didn't I wasn't trying to write a funny book. It just sort of it was, came out that way. No, um. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a personal, beautiful read. I mean, it's it's not a tract, it's not an academic. Uh, analysis. It's so it's got so much of you in it oh, you. that I feel like I know you in ways that I never thought I knew you. Um, <laughs> well, you, you do. <laughs> so now in the in, so now let's take it from a cultural perspective. When I started, you could hardly find a book about you know you could hardly find a book by a Latin American writer that was translated into English. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking 38 years ago. I remember when Bard started the Latin American series, and all of a sudden. You know, Manuel Puig and, and, and Cortazar and all of those guys started getting published. Um, and now we're in a very kind of golden age over the last six, seven, eight years of so many different voices getting published in English. Mm. Not in, only in translation, but people who are from here from different perspectives and it's being honored in a way that it never was honored. And so being in, being in the university and and rubbing shoulders with so many people who are from other university 
you know, writing programs who are writing yeah. as well. Uh, what do you see happening in in the literary world along those lines and the literary voices that are emerging? Is there more opportunity today than there might have been five, six, eight years? I don't know. Ago? I don't know that there's more opportunity. Um, because I don't I do mean, think, I don't mean yeah. in the academic world. No, I, I'm, I'm talking, talking the more in the publishing world. world. Yeah, I, I don't actually know that there's more opportunity. I know that there's movements. There's the the, the We Need Diverse Books. There's the Own Stories. There's a lot of these different... There's a lot of these different movements happening. I worry sometimes that it's more about looking like we're solving a problem rather than actually solving a problem because with publishing, the bottom line is always going to be what will sell. Um so I'm not sure that I'm seeing more opportunity, but I am sensing more urgency. And there are now more examples of people who've been able to push through a door. I get a lot of emails from readers saying that that my work is encouraging them to keep working on a manuscript they had abandoned. And I always try to write back to these emails because I'm like, we need, we need to hear from you. We need your voice. Um, but there's a sometimes an like a a consequence of publishing is that you know the they've checked off the box and they're like oh hey we already got one of these we don't need another one and that's, that's that is something that that is I something think still that's is worrisome there. and yeah, it's, it's still there. it probably is there but what i'm seeing as a bookseller is many 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 more books mm -hmm. actually being offered to us from people of diverse voices whether it's someone like Tommy Orange who mm -hmm. wrote his first book or um yeah, it's very encouraging yeah or the the author of friday black mm -hmm. or um i mean it's it's just happening and cascading in a way that i think there's no turning back at this point well, i hope point. you're right because i do i do sense because the I, urgency because i think what's happening is that publishers are beginning to understand that there needs to also be editors who are diverse you know yeah. the only way that it can ever really work is if the editorial community becomes a little more and i think they're still playing well. catch up on that and they are um, but the small presses are, are, are getting are. better and yeah. better and better and my first well. book was, was with a small press and yeah. that allowed for the second book to happen and then the third book to happen so um yeah and i think what's actually happening is our world is becoming more diverse you know particularly the I mean, world it, here we've always been here no, no, <laughs> we've always been here, but but the numbers, truly, the numbers right, are becoming right. more diverse. And I think with with the with, with people like you who are pointing out the things you're pointing out, that access is not access is opening in mm -hmm. a way, even if you have to push through to mm -hmm. make that access happen. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm looking at it from such a kind of weirdly. Um, global perspective in that i'm going through catalogs right. i'm looking at what's being published i'm looking at what people are focusing on mm -hmm. i'm looking at imprints that are being created there's a there's a writer here uh named pablo cortaya i don't know mm -hmm. if you know pablo he's a new author with a young adult novel newly out from penguin random house and their new imprint coquila and it's for you know, it's for, for middle school and YA books of people of color and diversity. Yeah. Those are things that never had happened before. Right, right. And if it becomes something of just checking off a box and then disappearing, I think there'll be such an uproar if that were to happen. I I'm hope you're hoping. right. I mean, I hope you're right that there'd be an uproar and that the uproar comes from everywhere and not just from the impacted communities, oh, right? Oh, completely. Oh. Uh, I hope it comes from 
from all from, readers. From right? the white privileged community yeah. as well. Well, I can't thank you enough. Oh. I mean, I can't thank you enough. This Janine, has been such a pleasure. Oh, it's you know, a dream come true you. to be on the podcast. That, oh, well, the podcast, and we, we yeah. you know, to, to launch the book last night here at the store was really a thrill. Oh, it was so fun. To see everybody here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even though you're living in Lincoln, Nebraska, we think of you as one of our own. Oh, I'm, and thank you for saying that because I am like desperately trying to cling to that. Um, I still got the 305 number. I still got, I'm like, when people ask me, they're like, oh, where are you, where are you from? It's a very, tricky question to answer quickly. And I, when it's something like a, like I'm in a cab or something, I'll say, oh, I'm from Miami. And they're like, oh, is that where you're coming from? I'm like, well, no, I live in Lincoln, but I'm from Miami. And that will always, that will always be how I feel. So um, wow. until I can make it, until I can make it back home, uh, it's just in fits and spurts now to be home. But yeah. Well, we thank you for being on the very life. having me. And it was wonderful to have you. Janine, what we've what I would love you to do too, so people can get a, a, a flavor of the book, is if you could read a short section, that would be great. Yeah, I can do that. Um, this is the beginning of an essay called Going Cowboy. One of the first things I did when I moved from Florida to Nebraska was find myself some cows to herd. It seemed like a must when considering one of the state's claims to fame, there are, that there are over three times as many cows as there are people within its borders. I'd moved to the state to take a job at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, the state's capital and its second largest city, and learned before my time there officially began that roughly 25% of the incoming class would be first-generation college students. I had this in common with them, but there was a key difference. Many of these first-gen students came from rural backgrounds, from families where work centered on cattle and corn. I'd grown up in Miami, had gone to a high school whose population rivaled that of some entire Nebraskan towns. With the last few weeks of summer ahead of me, I decided that to be better at my job, I needed to see the real Nebraska, whatever that meant. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you.